the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church. So, the letter to the church of Laodicea, if you would, stand for reading of the Word of God, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 through 22. This is our last church that we'll be addressing in the book of Revelation. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich have, and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, how would you like Jesus to say that to you when you thought you were all in? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Oh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word, and Lord, we're thankful that you have showed us these churches, which are really have existed all through time, started actually in in Turkey at the beginning 2,000 years ago, and have existed for 2,000 years, and each church predominated at a specific time, and we know we are at the end because the Laodicean church predominates today. Oh, Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the things of the Spirit. Speak Speak to our hearts things that we need to hear things that we need to know, things that we need to apply. May we be people that walk through this with the strength and grace and power of our God, not in a panic, but an abject trust of our Lord, that he is coming soon to rescue us from this mess. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Again, glad you are here today. Jesus is writing a personal letter to you, to each church, and you are the church. Remember, these churches, as I said, have existed all through time. And in your life, you may have lived out these different churches. We haven't all been faithful through this whole thing like the Church of Philadelphia. We might have been compromised. We might have been corrupt. We might have been dead in our spirits. There's been multiple things that we could have acted out in in our lives. Jesus is telling what he likes and dislikes about each church, and he's encouraging in people to be overcomers in each church. Overcome what is presented to you. Now, the theme of Revelation is this. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming in judgment to judge the earth, and Jesus is coming soon. 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 I can just, all I can say is, Maranatha, soon come, Lord Jesus. Last week, we talked about the Church of Philadelphia, the faithful church how the faithful was defined, and he gave us three things in verse 8 that defined the faithful church. Number one, the faithful church had little strength in themselves, but full of strength in their God. People would look at them and say, oh, they have little. But God looked at them and says, they are powerful. Remember, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So you have little strength. Secondly, you have kept my word. They're obedient to the word of God. That is what an overcomer does. 
keeps the word of God, and thirdly, have not denied my name, represented Jesus to the culture that they were in as Jesus really is. Not the make-believe Jesus that people want so much today, the Jesus that will allow them to do anything that they want covered in love. Remember, my Jesus is a Jesus of love. Translation, I can do whatever I want. I can live any way that I want. Oh, no, Jesus loves you too much to allow you to do that. That's the truth. Jesus' promise to overcomers is this, and please do not miss this of all the things you want to remember. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial. That's the tribulation period. And I believe that the church will not go through the tribulation period. Again, there are people that are Christians that believe that we will go through. Some of them believe we'll go through all of it. Some of them believe in a pre-wrath. They believe the wrath of God starts in Revelation chapter 6 at the sixth seal judgment. I believe the wrath of God, and like I said before, I'm going to make an argument for this, that it starts with the first seal judgment in Revelation chapter 6. Those who persevere will be kept from the hour of trial. And then Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Now, he said this 2,000 or more years ago. And so the church throughout the epochs of time is going, okay, when's Jesus coming? He's going to come quickly. He's coming quickly. Hey, prophetic events had to be placed in order. And we are living in a day where things have been placed in order. We are seeing things that Daniel certainly couldn't see. Ezekiel certainly couldn't see. Zechariah certainly couldn't see. But we are seeing them today right before our eyes. What are they? Israel was in the land on May 14, 1948. That is a seminal moment in Bible prophecy. That did not happen. They had to be in the land. And secondly, man had to have the ability to totally destroy themselves. Remember, Jesus said, lest these days be cut short, no flesh would be saved alive. So with nuclear, biological, chemical, we're really, really attuned to the biological now, aren't we? How a whole world can be destroyed by one bug. That's how powerful we are as humans. Isn't that, isn't that amazing how pitifully weak we are? And so full of hubris. So we, the ability to destroy ourselves. And then the, what you are seeing today is globalism on the march. What you see in the streets today is a planned event that this country changes from a nationalistic view to a global view, and we all become one people, and this is going to be a setup. Now, when, when Antichrist comes, this, this whole thing is going to be already in place. He's just simply going to rise to power with this system already in place. And they have the knowledge explosion that Daniel was talking about in Daniel 12.4. We know that's a knowledge explosion just of information, of intelligence, but we also know it's an explosion of seeing what is going to happen. We are seeing it happen right before our eyes, the knowledge of prophetic events coming to fruition. And the people running to and fro wondering, what is going on in our world today? There has never been a time on planet Earth where the spread of information has been so rapid and indoctrination been so complete as to take over the, the entire globe. I believe the faithful church will be taken out and not experience the tribulation period. Folks, maybe that's pie in the sky. That's what I see here, and that's what I'm praying for. Come and get me, Lord Jesus. This week, the church of Laodicea, quite a contrast to the church of Philadelphia. The lukewarm spew you out of my mouth church. Now, 
We have been through this, and this will be the last time you see these overheads. So here you go. Arnold who? Frugdenbaum. That's right. And oh, there we go. We got this thing cooking. Ah, oh, this, that's how I fix everything. Just, you know, hit it and it works. So anyway, these are the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. They predominated at a specific time. All these churches existed at, at these specific times, but one predominated. The one today that is predominating is Laodicea. Now, Laodicea predominates just before the rapture, and we're taken out of here and the tribulation period starts. That's what we're hoping for. Okay? Now, for your edification. If we are wrong, then we're pre-wrath. We're changing to pre-wrath right away, okay? But if we're hoping that this does not, if you see the Antichrist sign a peace covenant with Israel, you know, and we're still here, we're pre-wrath. It changes that fast. But right now, I don't see that happening, so we'll see what happens. The second one we have is, the, is Andy Wood's picture. And I love this because he circles the church. And, he, he just, and the reason I like this is because it indicates the passing of time like a clock. The passing of time. And this is where we are, the end time church, Laodicea. The lukewarm, spew-you-out-of-my-mouth church. Now, would you agree? Oh, goodness. I forgot my A.W. Tozer book. Well... You're going to get an A.W. Tozer paraphrase. Would you agree we're living in a state of emergency? Our world is in crisis. We have COVID crisis. We have an economy that has been devastated by the COVID crisis. We haven't seen the whole thing with our economy. We have not seen the results of all these lost jobs and all these closed businesses. We're seeing a little bit of bubble here, folks. We have not seen the outcome of this. We're seeing riots in the street affecting every state and spreading to the nations. We see Marxist philosophies embraced by the media, universities, and many in politics have embraced this. And I would suggest to you that America is at a tipping point. America has kicked out God and is living out the consequences. America is not in Bible prophecy, and my hope is that America is not in Bible prophecy because the rapture occurred. But you know what? America could just implode from within, just like Rome. But it is imploding. Humanity has always lived in a state of emergency. In A.W. Tozer, written in 1955, in his book, Born Again After Midnight, stated in 1959 that there was an emergency that existed in America an emergency that the people had turned away from the living God, 1959. Now, could you imagine what he would feel today? Now, he was still living in a time that would be the Laodicean church from 1900 on. But, folks, it has ta taken a quantum leap in deterioration. And the thing that he emphasizes there is that the Laodicean church are going through this thing, I can't see I can't hear. It's not affecting me. I'm just going to go about my business and pretend nothing is happening. Folks, that is the Laodicean way. We are the Philadelphia church. At least I hope we're the Philadelphia church. And that we are, have our eyes open and realize what's coming down the pike. 
It is not pie-in-the-sky stuff. He had a great thing to say here, and I'm sorry I forgot his book. Verse 14, the destination and the description of Jesus. And to the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Laodicea means this, the people ruling. The people are ruling, they are in charge. The only way the people can rule is how? God must be out. God is out, the people are in, the people are everything. That's a lukewarm church, and it was nauseating to Jesus, and he says, I will throw you up. The church of apostasy reigns today in most of the world. It looks religious, it looks spiritual, but it's sickening to Jesus. But I want you to know that God will always, always, always have a people, a remnant that will be true to him, who will not compromise, even though everyone around them is. Tony Garland has this to say about the Laodicean church. Laodicea was a great garment manufacturing center and pioneered mass production cheap outer garments. These garments used the wool of the vast flocks of the sheep that grazed at the high plateaus in the vicinity. Laodicea was proud. Oh, they were so proud of their garment industry. It was in its well-clothed citizens. This adds significance to what God, Jesus says, you are naked. You are naked in Revelation 3.17. This verse draws on another aspect of the Laodicean pride that was their medical center, their medical school, their famous school that had ointment for ears and ointment for the eyes. And Jesus says, oh, no, you are blind. You are so proud of this, but yet you are blind. I want you to think about this. In the previous six churches, Jesus had at least some commendation to give them. Even in the church of Sardis, he just squeezed out a little teeny commendation to the dead church. In this church, there is no commendation. It is just condemnation. We see the description of Jesus. Jesus identifies himself to the sickening church. These things says the amen, the faithful and true witness. I want you to emphasize that. The faithful and true witness, the real Jesus, the beginning of the creation of God. He is saying this because they have no idea who the real Jesus is. They used the name. They had the vernacular, but they don't know who the real Jesus is. Jesus says to them, he's the amen, which means so be it. Certainly true. He is the truth. You can trust whatever he has to say. Jesus is a faithful and true witness. And let me suggest to you, isn't that refreshing? Isn't that refreshing in a world that is pummeling you with the constant lies of untruths? It is, it is wonderful to know that we can find truth someplace. Lesson for us. Our life is to be lived out, faithful and true to our Lord, no matter the opposition that comes at us. Faithful and true to our God, no matter the opposition. Now, how will this look in our life? We're going to be faithful and true even when it's uncomfortable. And I want to say to you today, if you're a remnant church believer, it's going to become more uncomfortable for you in this world. 
You think you feel strained now? You haven't seen anything yet. Look at the rest of the world and what they are going through, where the church exists in places where Marxism exists. And you will know what discomfort is coming to America. And I'm hoping we're out of here. Faithful even when it's unpopular, and it's becoming more and more unpopular to be a Christian, the Marxists are so vehement and evil that they even want, they're not just taking down civil war things, now they're wanting to, tr- to attack religious things, you know, statues of Jesus and religious artifacts and that sort of thing. They want nothing to do with God. They want no reference to God in our country. They want him out. It's going to be very unpopular for us to be Christians, and it's going to be very important that we take our stand as Christians. Faithful even if it costs us. And, folks, if it costs us, we will simply join the throngs throughout the ages who have paid the price for being a Christian. Faithful is a remnant church trait. What does the faithful really look like? What do the faithful really look like? Well, Luke 9.23, Jesus tells us what the faithful are going to look like. If anyone desires to come after me, to follow me, let him take up his cross, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Look at the lukewarm Laodiceans would never even consider doing anything like this. They're always after the easy road. They will never stand against the pressure. They will just blend and cave and give in to the pressure and adapt to the pressure. They will compromise whatever they can. Compromise will be their middle name. Denying self-interest is the farthest thing from their minds. Why? Because it's all about me. The Laodicean churches, it's all about me. What do I get out of this? What is taking up your cross? What does it mean? Taking up your cross is this. It's an invitation to die to the self-life. An invitation to die to me, myself, and I. Now, that's not easy because you have something in you called your old man. And that, You can have your old man in you like when you're just born. Okay, he's there when you're just, it's just not when you're old like me. It's when you, your whole life you got your old man there that you're fighting, that you're fighting. And he wants his way. It's an invitation to die to the self-life. Your will, your way, daily. This is a remnant church lifestyle characteristic. It's not about me. It is about Jesus Christ whom I serve. That is who it is about. It is not about me. Now, the lukewarm need to know that Jesus is the amen. He is the, he is, he is the truth. He is the faithful and true witness. And they also need to know this, which a lot of people are fighting today. Jesus is the beginning of the creation of God. God created the heavens and the earth. God did not use a process. God spoke, and it came into being. I don't believe in theistic evolution. I believe that God spoke. The part of God that spoke and the part of God that created was Jesus. He was that part that created. Colossians 1, 15 through 18 says this perfectly. For by him, Jesus Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. You know what those are? Angelic hierarchy ratings. 
All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and all and in him all things consist. He made all of this. He holds the whole thing together. And you know what? This universe is expanding at a phenomenal rate, and he's still in control of it all. We have no idea of the vastness of God. A Laodicean person has no idea who God really is. Jesus holds everything together. And guess what? There are still a few today who believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you go to the indoctrination centers of our nation, the public universities, you will be indoctrinated to a worldview that challenges that, belittles that, belittles you in the classroom because you believe that. Most people today could care less. They have no concept of the omnipotence of God. And you know what's missing in our culture today? No fear of God. No fear of God. No awesome respect for God. Our world, folks, is in for a shock. The day when Jesus returns, it'll be shock and awe. And I think this will be what comes out of most people's mouths. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm on the wrong. Oh, no, I'm on the wrong side of this. Oh, no. By then, your fate has been sealed. Your fate has been sealed. Jesus is central. Every true believer must know in their life that Jesus is central. He will never be second place in our lives. He's going to be first place. The Laodiceans don't get this. If you are lukewarm Laodicean, everything is about you. Jesus will be very secondary and peripheral. Jesus will be fit in to your life. You won't be fit into where Jesus wants you. You will have Jesus fit into your life, and you will have Jesus condone whatever you think is right in your life. That's a Laodicean. The make-believe Jesus is very popular in the Laodicean world. Just make him up the way that you want to make him up. In verse 15 through 17, we have the condemnation. Again, there's not an ounce of commendation here. Nothing to commend this church for. 15 through 17, condemnation. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know. Now hear this. Remember how they thought they looked? Great and wonderful. Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. This church has nothing to commend itself to Jesus. Zero. They thought highly of themselves, and Jesus looked at them as zero. How Jesus views you is exceedingly important. Jesus viewed the Laodiceans as lukewarm, sickening, throw up. It's like epicac. You know what epicac is? It's a thing you give your kid if they eat mushrooms that you think are poisoned. And what do they do? They start throwing up. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an emetic. They viewed themselves as rich, in need of nothing, and they were deceived. They were deceived. Lukewarm. How many Christians can be described this way today in America? Lukewarm, tepid, 
And I would suggest to you it is the vast, vast majority. The vast majority. Now, speaking of the lukewarm, the reason that Laodicea used the example of the lukewarm was this. There's a city of Heropolis, which was northwest of Laodicea. And it had hot springs. And these hot springs would funnel water to Laodicea. By the time they got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm and putrid. It started out hot. It started out to be therapeutic and worthwhile, but it ended up being putrid and worthless. The church was distasteful, unusable, un- unusable like the city's water supply. Now, let me ask you a question. And this is, this is something that I ask myself. Rick, how would you describe a Laodicean Christian? Now, you can have your list, but this is my list. Self-centered, self-sufficient, haughty. Look at all, we're wealthy. We're in need of nothing. We have everything. Full of themselves. And you know what else a Laodicean characterized them? King baby. King baby, I'm the center of everything, and eventually good for nothing. 2 Timothy 3.5 tells us how this looks to God. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power, from such people turn away. You know what God's saying to anybody It's in a Laodicean church? We'll get to the open door in just a second. None of them are believing. First of all, believe, and then exit stage left out of that thing as quickly as you possibly can. This this, this godliness denying its power is very common today. Look at an example of this is this. There are so many churches today that affirm same-sex marriage. They have a form of godliness. A transgenderism, that's a form of godliness. They have many roads lead to God, open borders, globalism, a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. What did Jesus say about these people? They make me sick. I will vomit you out of my mouth. This is the only church, this is the only church that makes Jesus sick to his stomach. Can you imagine that? Jesus puts up with a lot with humanity. But yet this one is the only one that he says makes him sick. We know that he's long-suffering, but it only goes so far. These folks make him sick. Phony, baloney Christianity make Jesus sick. It's amazing how many people are satisfied today with a religious fix, the make-believe Jesus, yet reject the true, life-saving, wonderful, incredible, real Jesus. Now, why is this? Why do people not want the real Jesus? That's so puzzling to me. Well, if you really think about it, People, people like their sin. I like my life the way that it is. If I can squeeze Jesus in like I said before, that's what I'll do. That's the Jesus I'm going to make up. People refuse to have God reign over them. Look, if you're a Christian, you're not in charge of your life. You're not in charge of where you live. You're not in charge of where you go to church. You're not in charge of what you do. Jesus is in charge of your life. He directs your steps. We're here to serve him. He's not here to serve us. We're here to serve him. How many times have you heard this one? Now, you have, if you have a kid, you've heard this, or you've been a kid, you've said this. No one can tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
People want their own way. No one can tell me what to do. This is the attitude of a Laodicean, all about me, myself, and I. They are right where Satan wants them, religious, lost, deceived. That is right where he wants them. Their view of self was this. I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need for nothing in verse 17. I, we need nothing. It's, can, you, can you just, it, the arrogance is palpable. It's just palpable. King baby, look at me how great I am. I am the greatest attitude. Look at all of my stuff. I am wealthy. God must really like me because look at all the stuff I have. Their attitude, the one with the most stuff wins. You know why that's wrong? Go to the pyramids and examine Pharaoh's tombs. And what do you find in Pharaoh's tombs? All of their stuff that didn't go with them to the afterlife. They left it all here. It was useless. They worshiped their stuff. Jesus viewed them as they really are. A far cry from what they thought. Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You know what Jesus sees? He sees through the, he sees through the smoke and the mirrors of your life. You can put up all the smoke screen you want. You can do all the pretending that you want. You might be able to fool your mom and your dad. You might be fool, able to fool your husband or your wife. You might be able to fool your fellow church workers. You might be able to fool yourself, but you cannot fool Jesus. He sees through the whole thing. Jesus speaks about wealth. You have become wealthy. What does this tell you about riches? What does this tell you about riches? Do not make them your idol. It's easy to become enamored with your stuff. Luke 18.25 gives us a caution. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. What is Jesus saying? Riches, if they're your sole focus, and that's what earth dwellers focus on, their stuff will be a hindrance to you. Earth dwellers think it's all mine. See, I earned it. It's all mine. I deserve this. But you know what a heaven dweller, you know how they function? They realize that they're stewards. They are simply caretakers of what God has given them. It's not mine. It's his. Big difference. Does this mean that it's wrong to have stuff? No, just so stuff does not have you. Listen to this, 1 Timothy 6.17. This attitude is important. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches. And then he goes on with this. But in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. God is not a killjoy. God is giving is a giving God. If you have your focus right, he has no problem with you having stuff. No problem at all. God is not stingy. Riches are not the problem. The heart is the problem. 
Not haughty, arrogant, uppity, look down at others because they are poorer than you. How does God view stuff? It depends on your focus. The right focus on God with an open, generous hand is, is, is favorable to God. Stuff is okay if your focus is right, if your eyes are on the right thing. The right focus, open hand. Just watch what God will do with that type of attitude. He is not stingy. He is generous. And remember, you are a steward of what you've been given. You will take nothing with you when you leave this world. Nothing. It just blows my mind how people like George Soros, a billionaire, can be at his age and still strive to spend money on things that are evil and to make as much money as he can. That dude's passing, and he's passing soon. And he'll be standing before a holy God to give an account of his life. And yet his focus is on money and what he can do with it. God gives us richly all things to enjoy. Think about the times that we're living in. Think about the condition of the church in America, the church of apostasy, the lukewarm church. You know what has happened? The church has developed world methodologies to attract the world in its music, its entertainment, in its watered-down preaching, in its social gospel message. It was sprinkled with Eastern religion has come into the church, mysticism has come into the church in order to be relevant. And experience has come into the church where experience trumps what Scripture says. You know what many people think? If my experience trumps what the Scripture says, then there's a new move of the Spirit. They, they, they put their own name on it. Oh, there's a new move of the Spirit going on today. It's not in the, it's not in the Word. I'm just declaring it's a new, word, new move of the Spirit. That's that, an example of that would be the New Apostolic Reformation, where God is now raising up prophets and apostles to have leadership authority during this end-time church. Okay, the apostles and the prophets had their time. They established the foundation of the church in Ephesians chapter 2, Jesus being the chief cornerstone. That has been established. But they take on this mantle for power and authority and prestige. That is wrong. Is it any wonder? Now, listen to this. Is it any wonder why so many are dropping out of the church today? Apostate church reigns. Where is the Holy Spirit power in the church today? The Scripture is minimized in churches today, and hypocrisy reigns in churches today. And guess what? The dropout rate of millennials is 80%. 80% of our young people are dropping out. In an attempt to remain relevant, the church has become incompetent and impotent. They are marshmallow, feel-good church, no roots to sustain it. And you know who knows this? The youth know it. They can see through the phony baloney. Our youth, look, folks, we have to be so tender towards them because they have been indoctrinated from the time they were born hearing little stories from books, little, little childhood books that are telling them that same-sex marriage is okay. 
and they're raised with this right out of the gate. Our youth have been indoctrinated into a worldview that is completely anti-God. And they get it from the very beginning all the way through their educational system, and then you go into the workplace and you get hammered with it. Can you imagine what they are dealing with? I didn't get that. Okay, I had some of that. I didn't get anything like these poor people have to go through today. They are pounded with a worldview that is anti-God. And remember this, Brandon House, in his book, that I can't remember the name of it, talked about a worldview. A worldview is the lens in which and the way you see your world. And that worldview is determined by what you are taught, doctrine, teaching. And our young people have been taught and indoctrinated into a worldview that is anti-God and anti-Bible. Is it any wonder that they're falling out when they get so much contrary information from the world? Your worldview, your doctrine, doctrine and teaching will determine your worldview. Your worldview will then determine your values, what you think is important. And your values will then ultimately result in your conduct. Look at our streets today. Look who's running around in chaos today, using the Black Lives Matters as a screen to accomplish what they want to accomplish with their socialism and communism. It is the, it is the elite university graduates who have been pounded by university professors about Marxism and extolling that life, and now they are running around in the streets living out their values, living out by their conduct. Apostasy is truly an indicator that we are living in the last days. You must know this. Please know this. Apostasy will be prevalent prior to Christ's return. 2 Thessalonians 2, 2, 3 says this, Let no one deceive you. Now, why does Paul say that? Because deception's going to be going over the top. Let no one deceive you by any means. In other words, there's going to be lots of ways that people are going to try to deceive you. For that day will not come. The day of the Lord will not come unless the falling away comes first. That's the apostasy. That's the apostasy. Now, there are people in the church today that are trying to make the apostasy the rapture of the church. And they come up with a good argument for this. And there's a lot of them that do this. Uh, Tommy Ice, Andy Woods. There's a lot of them. They're very good Bible teachers that believe this. I did, I, I'm not there yet. I believe that the apostasy is the falling away of the church. The apostasy comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. The church falling away is a key sign that we are living in the last day. What is the condition of the majority in the Western church who think they are so great? Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Not covered with the righteousness of Christ. Verse 18 through 20, the exhortation. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, and he gives this great word, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come into him, dine with him, 
and he with me. Jesus hits these people, just like Jesus does, right between the peepers, right at their source of value, right at their treasure, their pride center, what this city was all about. They hit them in, in, with their gold, their wealth. He hits them at their garment industry, their prestige. He hits them in their medical expertise. Their, it, we hear today, the science. Oh, the science is this. The science is that. Oh, the pride of their medical expertise. Their eyes salve, yet they are blind. He says, hear the counsel of Jesus. I counsel you. If Jesus says that, I counsel you, what are you going to do with your ears? Whoa, whoa, listen up. Buy from me gold refined in the fire that you might be rich. Not your gold. Buy from me the gold that will make you rich. This speaks of a life of the impurities, the dross being taken off. Remember, gold, when it is refined, is heated up, and the dross comes to the top, and you scrape off the dross until it is clear and pure. You can see your reflection in it. That's how Jesus makes you when you come into a, in, when he comes into your life. He makes you pure and clean. You get a reflection of who Jesus really is. Even though you're still a bunch of dross, you get a reflection because of the blood of Jesus applied to your life. The speaks with the impurities of dross scraped off its salvation. He says, "Buy from me the white garments, not phony Laodicean garments." Real, valuable, white garments of salvation. We know that in Revelation 7, 9, that the saved get white robes. White garments. This is believers. And then buy from me the, the eye salve. Not the Laodicean eye salve, but Jesus who opens blind eyes eye salve. That you can see salvation. These three things. He hits them in their area of treasure. He he. he, he, he debunks their treasure, and says, this is what you really need in those areas, salvation. What must be this church's focus? Not the things they value. Folks, it's not what we value. It's what God values that is important. What is Jesus saying to this church? You need to be saved. You need to be saved. Now, let me give you this. Many today believe that there are no believers in this church. There are some really good Bible teachers that believe there are a few real believers in this church. And they say that because of verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, and God chastens those he loves. He disciplines those he loves. So there is an argument for that, but there are other verses in Scripture that say, God chastens those who are not true and not, not legitimate Christians. So that's, that's the argument there, just so you know it. Think about this. Jesus has no commendation for this church. They have no works that demonstrates that anyone is saved within that body. It is not that Jesus does not love them. He has a heart for them because he will rebuke them. He'll love them. These people are indifferent to the real Jesus. That's the problem. Yet Jesus loves them. Look at how long in your life were you indifferent to Jesus? And yet he still loved us and he still came at us. I thank him for that. I thank him for that. Can you hear the cry of Jesus to this church in verse 20? 
And I think this is said with passion. This is, this is the passion of Jesus Christ. Behold, I, you can hear him just pleading. I stand at the door knock. If you have a child that's off, if you have a loved one that's off, and you can just feel the passion here, knocking, behold, I stand at the door knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. In Revelation 1.13, Jesus is walking through the lampstands. And remember, the lampstands were emblematic of the church. And so Jesus was walking through his churches. He was intimately involved with his churches. He knew what each one was doing. But on this one, he's not walking amongst the church. He's seen outside the church, knocking on the door for entrance. That's why I believe that there are no true believers in this church. Verse 21 through 22, the promise. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I have overcome, as I have also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now look at This promise is a big promise. It's easily overlooked with Christian language and that sort of thing. But hear this. Overcomers will sit with Jesus on his throne. Now, right now, you're living in America today in 2020, and you're going, oh, okay, I get to sit someday on Jesus. Okay, whatever that means. Look, at this is a position of honor and authority that you will have given to you by Jesus, and that will be exceedingly valuable to you. You cannot imagine how valuable that is going to be to you based upon what you have done here for Jesus Christ. I think this is one of the rewards that we're getting at the Bema Seat Judgment. To him who overcomes, I'll grant him to sit with me on a throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus overcame. His walk on this earth was no picnic. He finished his race. He died for us that we could live. We are to model this, finish our race. Look, Jesus came here, and he did what he was supposed to do. Can you imagine God coming to be one of us? See, I used to think it would be like us becoming an ant. But I think it's way worse than that. It's us becoming a slug. What's the nastiest bug you can think of? Just a sluggy, nasty bug. He became one of us. He went from the glory of heaven to become a human being. That's so short of that. He experienced all of humanity's sin. He experienced everything that we experienced. And for eternity, he, had a re- he is in relationship with, with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And for that moment on the cross, that three-hour time when it was dark on the cross, and all of our sins and all of the sins humanity, past, present, and future, came upon him, Father could not look upon him. He felt the separation from his Father. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You can feel the pain of Jesus. He finished it. He overcame. And he did it for us. And I can say this, what a Savior and what a friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. He is our friend. He is worthy to be praised. Today, Jesus is sitting at the Father's right hand. And guess what? He's our high priest making intercession for us. We have an advocate with the Father. 
He speaks on our behalf. That's another big deal that we kind of just pass away. It's great to have your best friend advocating with you that has all power. That's Jesus. In the future, Jesus will be sitting on his own throne, King of kings and Lord of lords forever. Listen what the Father says about the Son in Hebrews 1.8. But to the Son, he says, the Father speaking, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Jesus Christ is God. Make no mistake, Father calls him God. You can know he's God because God will not share his glory with another. And the Father just shared his glory with his Son. The scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. Now, this is important for anybody that you know, anybody that you love, anybody that you care for. There's still a chance for this church today, for these people today, to overcome apostasy and believe and receive the gift of salvation. Let me say this. As long as there is life, there is hope. I don't care if you have the O sign, and you might come, you have hope. It is only when you take that last breath that hope is gone. So continue to pray. Continue to press. Don't give up. Don't think that someone's gone too far. There's always hope right to the end. In a moment, an eternity can be changed forever. In a moment. In a moment. Even in this church, Jesus is giving them hope to the end. Remember, Jesus is pulling for you. The Holy Spirit is pulling for you. The Father is pulling for you. Listen to what two scriptures say that you are familiar with, just to remind you. 2 Peter 3.9 tells you the heart of God. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but everyone should come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2.4, God is our, God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That is the heart of God, for people to be saved. When you hear the heart of God, when you know what Jesus has done, when you know and can realize and can somehow conceptualize what he left to become one of us, you will just burst into praise and say, thank you, God, for what you have done. The psalmist will help us with this. Psalm 103, 1 through 5 says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul. That word bless is barak. Barak, praise, bend the knee to. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. Now listen to this. For he heals all of my diseases. He forgives all your iniquities first. And he heals all of your diseases. Who redeems your life from destruction. Who crowns you with loving, loving kindness and tender mercies. Who satisfies your mouth with good things. And then I love this. So that your youth is renewed like the eagle. You know, when we get to heaven, and you got this achy, breaky thing that's going on in your body right now, your youth is going to be renewed like the eagle. It's all going to be new. It's never going to wear out. Amen. That's a hip, hip, array. Amen. 
And then there's this admonition, and he says to each one of these churches, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. John Corson ends this section of Scripture with these words. It is one thing to have Jesus as our model mascot. It's another to have him as our master. May our church not be a place that is popular, full of people who have good mottos and good intentions. May it be a place where we realize that although we are sinners who have failed miserably, God has provided Jesus Christ, and he will come into our hearts to rule and to reign within if we simply open the door. In closing, a question for you. Would you not agree that we are living in a time like none other? The earth has had a lot of difficult times, but we've never lived in a time like this where communication was so vast, where instant information was available to us, where we know exactly what is going on through every city 24-7. Someone tore a monument down, and you know about it right now on TV. Oh, there goes... It affects you. It affects your mentation. It affects your spirit. We didn't have to deal with that in the past. We didn't have to deal with that in the past. We are living to see prophecy fulfilled right before our eyes. Chaos in the streets. Lawlessness abounds. Murder in our city surpassing true, any type of troop casualties in Afghanistan or Iraq. We are so privileged to be alive at this time. A bit disconcerting? Yep. A little bit scary? Yep. A bit of wonder? What in the world is going to happen next? See, I bet you when you go to sleep every night, you get up in the morning and you wonder, I wonder what they did last night. I wonder what went on last night. But still a sense, because we are the remnant church, that God is in control. Jesus told us what to expect. Everything is progressing on schedule. I believe, personally, the next thing on the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church, followed by the one-world government and religion, which planet Earth is marching full speed ahead towards. During this time of immense change, we are seeing phenomenal change in our world today. I pray that God will use you, and I, lo- I, I got the picture, to stand like a bull in a blizzard like this dude, He's a little snorty. He's a little bit stubborn. That's going to be a stand like a bull. We will not be moved. Hopefully that's you. Not to be indoctrinated, not to be indoctrinated in a worldview, deceived by the media. We are to resist indoctrination. Resist indoctrination. I don't care how much time the media pounds it down your throat. I don't care how many times the government tells you to agree with the media. I don't care how many times your college professor tells you to agree with this stuff. We will not be moved. And during this election season, I will plead with you. I, I hate every four years I despise this time frame because it brings out the most evil in people. And it is crescendoing like I don't think we've ever seen it before. Do not buy into the political theatrics. Be discerning and vote for people. I will urge you to vote for people that best represent a biblical worldview. That makes it pretty simple, doesn't it? 
and use your life to tell people about the amazing love of Christ. Soon and very soon, folks, we're going to see the king. And it'll be really important how you represented him while you're here. When our Lord comes for us, may we be found faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that you've given us your word. Thank you that we know what is coming. Lord, we know it is unrestful to see these changes, but we also know that you predicted it this way, that you told us this would happen. You told us not to be troubled in our spirit. You told us to rest in you. So, Father, that is what we do today. We put our eyes on you. We put our trust in the living God who tells us the truth all the time. And thank you that we know that we know that we know that in the end, Jesus wins. Thank you for this time that you've given us to study your word. In Jesus' name, amen.